Take a Bible and turn to the very opening of it, to Genesis chapter 1. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is held on the Sunday in January that falls closest to the day on which two Supreme Court decisions were handed down back in January 22, 1973. That was Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. Thirty years later, in 1983, uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday began when the Christian Action Council, known today as CareNet, uh, that was founded with the help of Dr. Francis Schaefer and former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop. They asked President Reagan to create a special day to focus on the intrinsic value of human life. Now, these words that I'm going to read in just a moment have shaped how people viewed humans and the value of human life. It is, it is, these words have shaped that through the centuries all over the world. Uh, So if you will follow along with me, I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've ever, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. For those that haven't read much of the Bible, or <clears throat> maybe this is relatively new to you, these were words written by Moses. Moses was the great leader. He was the lawgiver through whom God brought the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, out of four centuries, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Moses constituted them as a nation for God's service. He brought them within reach of the land that had been promised to their forefathers. Now, who was Moses? He was born, to use round numbers, around 1350 B.C. in Egypt. He was born in a Hebrew family. So his family had been slaves, as had all the Jews, by the time he was born, for almost 400 years. At that time, the Egyptian pharaoh had given an edict. Because of the proliferation of the Jewish people, the pharaoh gave an edict which ordered the destruction of all the Hebrew male infants. So Moses' mother put him into a little floating basket made of reeds or papyrus, put him by a stream bank, and told his sister to keep watch. His sister's name was Miriam. Soon a daughter of Pharaoh came with her maidservants to bathe in the river, and they found the child. And they took pity on him. And Miriam made her presence known and offered to find a nurse for the child. And so it ended that... Moses' own mother ended up being his nurse, and his life was saved. 
Moses, though, was raised by his adoptive mother, the Egyptian princess, and thereafter, Moses was educated in the Egyptian court society. So our understanding is that Moses wrote not only the book of Genesis, but also the four books that come after it. He wrote the first five books of the Bible called Penta for five, Took for book, the Pentateuch, the first five books. He was a highly educated man. He had received that at Pharaoh's court. He was able to read and to write, and he would have been of the type that would carefully preserve records that had come down. Now, the Genesis creation account probably was received by direct revelation from God to Moses since we know that happened elsewhere in the scriptures. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's the great introduction to the story of redemption. Chapters 1 to 11 are regarded as the prologue to the plan of redemption, which really begins in chapter 12 with the introduction of a man named Abraham. So if that's the prologue, then the epilogue is the book of Revelation that comes at the end of the Bible. We believe this is a historical book as opposed to myth or legend or fairy tale, primarily because the rest of the Bible bears testimony to that fact. And so the material in these chapters is regarded as historical by the other inspired writers of the Bible. The historical context of when and to whom Moses wrote these words is very important. And I will point out one or two examples this morning. They are important as to how we interpret the scripture itself. Now with that in mind, I intended to read all of the first chapter, but because of time I just chose day six and the concluding words of chapter one. And I think it's important for us to know who we are. It's a really good thing to know who you are. When I was a child, I could not hear enough of my parents talk about the day I was born and where I was born and the particular hospital and so forth. And it's important now. Some of you put your information on Ancestry.com and other such places, and you want to know about who... It helps define who I am. It's where I'm from. It's very good to know who you are. Now, my mother trained me with the the best literature of the day. And so my favorite books are those by P.D. Eastman. Such masterpieces as Go, Dog, Go, A Fish Out of Water, Big Dog, Little Dog. Y'all have these books? Did y'all live deprived life in childhoods? Perhaps his best book was Are You My Mother?, if you remember that story, there's this baby bird and it's hatched while the mother is away. It falls from the nest and this little bird sets out to look for his mother. And he asks everyone he meets, including a dog and a cow and an airplane, are you my mother? Now P.D. Eastman was saying everyone needs to know where they come from. That's what happens here in Genesis chapter 1. Moses was telling the Israelites and us, we are made in God's image. This is where we are from. He says we're made in the image of God, and that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Since we are made in the image of God, we have inherent dignity, value, and worth. In chapter 1 of Genesis, the creation is cranking right along. In day 1, and I passed over that, but he started the beginning of the chapter. 
On day one, God separates the light from the darkness. He says the light is very good. And each day ends with there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then on day two, God separates the water above from the, uh, the, what's beneath with the expanse. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And it goes on and on. And day three, the water and the dry land are separated and the plants grow. And God says it's good. And there was evening and there was morning third day and then the fourth day is the stars and the moon and the sun and it was good and day five he creates the sea creatures and the birds and it was good and then we come to day six which we just read and there's a change because now we come to the pinnacle of creation and God has saved the best for last the fish and the creatures of the sea, we find out, are to reproduce after their kind. That phrase repeats itself. The birds of the air were to reproduce after their kind. The cattle and the creeping things and all sorts of animals and beasts were to reproduce after their kind. And then we come to verse 26, and God says, Let us make man after our kind. And that doesn't mean we are deity. It doesn't mean we are gods and goddesses. We are not. But we are creatures made in the image and the likeness of God. We are unlike any other creatures that God has made. For you have an eternal soul. And man alone is made in the image of God. You know, if you look at creation and deep space and the ocean and plants and so forth, it's stunning. I have a pastor friend in Florida and he told I heard him tell of a scientist in his church, and this man's an astronomer. And he told how this man, his, his friend, had been in Ocala at a large exhibit that he had participated in, and he had set up a very, very high-power telescope. And he liked to sit there and watch the reactions of people who have never really looked into deep space and to see how they would react. He told of one person that came, and when she looked through the telescope into deep space, she started crying just overwhelmed with how stunning and beautiful it was. And then another person just started laughing, nonstop laughing. Deep space and the stars and the galaxies, and it's stunning, but they are not the crown jewel. Many of you have flown over the Atlantic. If you've been to Europe, you go over in the dark, but if you come back in the daytime, which is typical, at least for a little while, you can see the ocean. It's huge. It's stunning. Or if you fly over the Rocky Mountains, amazing. But they are not the crown jewel of God's creation. Humans are, not birds, not fish, not giraffes, not the hippopotamus. It's amazing what people hear in sermons. I had a man come up to me after the first service, and he said, quoting a comedian of our day, was it a hippopotamus really a hippopotamus or just a real cool opotamus? It wasn't daisies, it wasn't tulips, it wasn't giraffes, for they are not made in the image of God. I mentioned that Moses was brought up in Egypt, and he's writing to the Israelites. And this point is very important, because the pharaohs believed that the commoners and the peasants and the slaves had no inherent value, none. They believed it was their destiny to suffer and to die for the gratification of the kings. And so the slaves had no dignity. They had no respect. Only Pharaoh represented divine authority on earth. And so they would erect images of themselves, some still in existence today, to show that they were very important. 
and that they would live forever. And now Moses is saying to all of these people who've known nothing but slavery for 400 years, you are made in the image of God. The Hebrew phrase connotes the idea of a child-to-father relationship. As a young child, I got the name Chip because they would look at me and say to my dad, he's a chip off the old block. Literally, well, there's a sense in which to be made in God's image is to be a chip off the block in that sense. That he intended a creature who would relate to him, who would know him as Father, our Father in heaven. So what are the implications? What are some implications of being made in the image of God? By the way, this is the first of three sermons I plan to do. The next two Sundays, next week on God's creation for marriage. And that will extend into the the third week as well. What are the implications of being made in the image of God? First, it ought to affect how you view yourself, how you see yourself. We use the term today, self-image. Do you ever look at yourself in the mirror and have mixed emotions at what you see? I was reading this past week about how adults, at least in America, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, (laughs) uh, a generalization is that women tend to be harsher on themselves. They see themselves as less beautiful, less attractive, and men, on the other extreme, tend (laughs) tend to see ourselves as something we aren't, but from a better standpoint. But regardless, it's fairly typical that we compare ourselves to the beauty ideals of the day and all fall short. Or you base your worth on how people treat you or what they think about you or what's happened to you. But regardless of your own self-assessment, you need to know that you're made in God's image and therefore you have inherent glory, dignity, value, and worth. And the term we hear today, which I think doesn't help, and we all know it, is before you can love anyone else, you must learn to love, speak to me, yourself. I mean, that's we think that's some verse out of Psalms or something like that. But actually, that's the problem. Because we are too self-absorbed. And rather than a positive self-image, we need a biblical self-image. Now, don't get me wrong, if you're hypercritical of yourself or if you're just always beating yourself up, you don't understand what it means to be made in the image of God. And so the important thing, I think, is not so much to have a positive self-image, but a biblical self-image to where we learn to love what God loves and value what God values. And he values you because you're made in his image. This should also not only affect how we view ourselves, it should affect how we view others and how we treat others. That all people have inherent dignity, value, and worth, therefore all human life is valuable. Now, I said that at a Wednesday noon luncheon Bible study down here several years ago, and a woman, and she's she's gone to be with the Lord now, but she came up and really challenged me on that point. And I did not know her too well, but I found out that as a younger person, she and her family had been greatly abused by a couple of people who are now in prison. She said, they have no dignity, they have no value, they have no worth. And I said, well, in the sight of God, they do. This does not mean that people are all act dignified or that there aren't mean people. And there are dull people and there are boring people and perhaps they are some of us. But in God's sight, the poorest person sleeping on the park bench is of no less worth than a president. 
It's easy to say in church, but it's difficult to practice. I was getting gasoline a few blocks away some time ago, and a man came up to ask me for money, and I had just been asked one too many times, and I was a little tired of it. And I just, I was mean to him. I said no before he even got the words out of his mouth. No, I don't want to hear your story, and I'm not giving you any money. And he walked off, and I was convicted. I was not convicted that I had not pulled some money out of my bill. I was convicted that I did not treat him with dignity and worth. And that was wrong. And I failed to understand and to apply that all people are made in the image of God. Do you value people? C.S. Lewis said there are no ordinary people. He wrote a lot about this, but one of his quotations is, You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to our life as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke and marry and work and snub and exploit. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. How do you treat other people? Do you gossip? Do you malign them? Do you talk behind other people's backs? Do you realize when you gossip, according to the book of James, you are attacking the image of God? He says, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. We bless God with this tongue, and then I'll curse men with this tongue. And he says, you are attacking God's image because of that. What about the taking of innocent human life? Why this passage on something like the unborn and to commemorate the sad anniversary of Roe v. Wade? Well, Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. This was the first clear prohibition against murder that we have in the Bible, and it formed the basis of capital punishment. And it's given because man is created in God's image, and if you destroy another person made in his image, you are attacking God himself. For example, let's imagine someone sends you an email this week. If I get an email that says, Chip, you are an arrogant jerk, I might say, okay, okay, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, and it's not really going to ruin my week. But imagine if I get a picture from someone, my own picture, and it's got a knife through the face. So, oh, that's a little different. They have, they have destroyed my image. That's like they're attacking me. That's what God is saying. To murder is the taking of an innocent human life, the intentional taking of an innocent human life. And so God says to do that is to attack me because my image is in that person. So it affects how we view ourselves. It should affect how we view other people. And third, knowing we are made in the image of God ought to affect how we view the elderly, the disabled, the infirmed, the unborn, and the helpless. And you must know that in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, they were particularly cruel to these categories of people. Abortion and infanticide was widespread. What brought about the change? Primarily, the Christianization and the widespread of the gospel within the Roman Empire. You know what Martin Luther King is to Mars MLK Day? Do you know what he grounded his arguments on civil rights on or in? It was not in American law. It, it wasn't in the, the Declaration of Independence or the Bill of Rights or, or the Constitution. He grounded the rationale, and it was very smart, He grounded the rationale in Genesis chapter 1 that all people are created in God's image regardless of skin color. So the Christian church has always like opposed abortion and infanticide. 
the killing of infants. That, for 2,000 years, that is by and away the position. If anyone comes today from a liberal church, if a liberal pastor stands, say Christians have been wishy-washy on this issue, they don't understand history. I will say that. They have not read church history. The church through the ages has always been opposed to the practice of abortion. So what happens when a culture like our own abandons a belief in the God of the Bible and that people are made in his image? Is the logical next step, then we'll, we'll just throw off such restraints and murder and rape and everything else just becomes acceptable? No. You have to find other grounds for the ethical decisions. And sometimes it's scary where those pursuits will take you. The best known and most widely read of all contemporary philosophers in America today has been Dr. Peter Singer. Peter Singer is a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He specializes in applied ethics. Now, Peter Singer says that rights, human rights, are grounded not because we're made in God's image. He's totally secular in his view. But they're grounded in our human capacities. Humans, unlike plants and animals, are more valuable than insects and animals and trees because man has capacities to think and to reason and to desire to live. So because I have the capacity to think and reason and make moral judgments, but Singer would argue that abortion is legitimate because, as he says, the unborn do not have these capacities that they do not have the capacity at that time to think and reason and to desire to live. He would also not stop there. He applies that also to the newly born, the infants, that they also don't have such capacities, as well as the senile, those with dementia, and those with Alzheimer's, and even those that are mentally disabled. Now, if you're not aware of this, this type of thinking at the rate we're going, will only become more and more pervasive in our culture, especially with changing economic times and when people question, well, is it worth it from a financial standpoint to keep, this, to keep giving care to this person? Now, let me tell you how it's applied, though, not from a Christian perspective, but from a secular man, Dr. Chris Gabbard. I was reading about Dr. Gabbard. He is a professor at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. He's a professor of British literature, English literature. He says, as an educated man, he did his Ph.D. at Stanford, that he totally bought into Peter Singer's ethics. And he himself embraced what Singer taught, that it was permissible to kill the unborn and to allow the impaired to die. This was his view. Sounded good, right? Until 13 years ago in 1999, he and his wife had a baby. And things went horribly wrong during the delivery and this baby was born not only blind, spastic quadriplegic, and cerebral palsy. And he wrote, and I quote his words. Now, this, this man is not a Christian. He wrote, after his birth, the son's birth, as I entered the intensive care nursery, I was deeply ambivalent, having been persuaded by the Princeton philosopher Peter Singer's advocacy of expanding reproductive choice to include infanticide. But there was my son, a sleeper unconscious, on a ventilator, motionless, under a heat lamp, tubes and wires everywhere, monitors alongside his steel and transparent plastic crib. What stirred most, what most stirred me was the way he resembled me. 
Nothing had prepared me for this, the shock of recognition, for he was the boy in my own baby pictures, the image of me when I was an infant. And I read now how he and his wife basically care for this 13-year-old who is just a 13-years-older version of what he was at birth. What was that? That is a father who loves a child because he sees that child was made in his image. It's important to know who you are. As God's image bears, it affects how we view ourselves, how we view others, how we view the helpless. It also, we see as his image bearers, we are to exercise dominion. We are to be fruitful and multiply. There are many implications about this for marriage and sex and procreation and childbearing and child raising. I plan to say more about this over the next two weeks. But verses 26 and 28 say we're to exercise dominion by ruling and subduing over the earth. God tells us to do what he was doing. In the opening verses of chapter 1, you have, it, it, it describes the expanse, and it was formless and void. And so what does God do as he speaks? He brings order, he subdues it, and he exercises dominion over it. Now what does he tell us to do? He tells us to do exactly what he had done, that we are to exercise dominion and subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. That should affect how we work. There are so many of us that seem to act as though we don't know what's the purpose of my life. Young people think that. Teenagers will say, I don't know. I don't, why am I here? Am I just taking up space? Older people, I'm not opposed to retirement. That's not what, please hear me. But if you think, the idea is I'll just get to a point, I'll make enough money so then I don't have to do anything. And so you may a retired person say, well, I, I tried golf and then hiking. Is this all there is? God has called us to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth. And it's through our work. That may include a job. That may include a vocation. I'm talking about everything we do toward that end. So whether you bake bread, you can do it with God's pleasure. Whether you build cabinets. You know, Dorothy Sayer, she wrote that the most Christian thing a carpenter can do is not walk away from carpentry and go on a mission trip. said the most Christian thing that carpenter can do is build quality chairs and tables. That was an understanding of what's being said in Genesis chapter 1. You're a nurse, do it to the glory of God. You practice medicine to the glory of God. You mow a yard to the glory of God. You're building a bookshelf. Measure twice, cut once to the glory of God. So do you see your life as something to invest in his service, ruling over the small part of the earth where he's given you domain, that he's entrusted to you as his vice regents, as his kings and queens to keep doing what he was doing when he created it's important to know, last of all, where you're going. And I close with this. Next Sunday, we'll hear a report from Covenant Care Services, our Christian Adoption Agency Associated Ministry. Many of you here uh, are, have firsthand experience with adoption. Many of you have been foster parents. Uh, many have adopted. <laughs> I heard the story of a mother who was reading to her young daughter before bedtime, and she looked over at her and said, you have your father's eyes. And the daughter looked back and said, but mommy, I'm adopted. And the mother says, oh, sometimes I just forget. What the Bible says about us is that because of sin, 
We are separated from the one who created us and made us in his image. And yet he sends Christ who allowed himself to be crucified on a Roman cross to take the penalty for our sin. And that when we receive him, we become his adopted children. We are adopted into his family. And even though we were originally made in his image and that image is marred, now he sends the Holy Spirit into our lives. And you know what Romans 8 says? That God works in us to conform us to what? To the image of his Son. So here's the image that's marred, going back to Genesis chapter 3. And now as new creatures, as adopted sons and daughters through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is conforming us, recreating in us, molding us to the image of Christ. Have you received him as your Savior? Have you put your faith in his work to make you right with God, to give you a new life? That's why you and I can never be satisfied with temporal things in this life. We have been hardwired to find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in our Creator, not in created things. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray to you today, not out of superstition, but because Jesus, your Son, intercedes for us now at your right hand, and so we have access through him to you. We pray that your truth might impact how we view ourselves with the value that you put on us, that we would have that same value, how we view others, how we view the innocent, the unborn, some of us caring for Alzheimer's parents, grandparents, some of us care for disabled children, that they can't talk and they can't express the things that our culture looks for to give them value. We pray we do this to your glory. Pray for those that work hard in all spheres, not only their jobs, but in their families and in other areas, and maybe they question the purpose, they question the meaning. It seems so mundane compared to something else, and pray that you might help them to serve you with diligence for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.